evidence and answers. Many Christians find prophecy in the scriptures hard to understand and difficult to interpret, and so they avoid it. But since so much of what we read in the Bible involves prophecy, what do we do? To help us with this, Dr. Ron Rhodes has come out with a new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will interview Dr. Ron Rhodes and discuss his new book, The Prophecy Answer Book. This book offers answers to some of the most common questions concerning prophecies in the Bible. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's Pat with part two of this interview. would typically say that there are at least one of them that was so influential back in the uh, 12th century, divided history into three primary ages. Like I said, the Reformers were attracted to this model and believe that the Catholic Pope is the Antichrist, but today we progress along to maybe chapter 16, 17. The thing of it is, though, that When you look at the book of Revelation, there's actually very specific time clues. And those time clues don't make much sense in this kind of a historicist approach, because history from the first century all the way up to the second coming is very long. But for example, in chapters 11 and 12, you find various references to three and a half years, which is half the tribulation period. You see reference to, for example, 1260 days. You see a reference to time, times, and half a time which is a Jewish way of describing three and a half years. You see in chapter four, reference to John to write things that happened after this. You know, there are specific time clues, which uh, I think don't make much sense in this historicist position. Now, by contrast, is the idealist approach to the book of Revelation. And this basically says that the book of Revelation is kind of nonspecific. You can interpret the persons and the events literally or specifically, but rather this is kind of a general and symbolic description of the ongoing battle between God and the devil, between good and evil. Now again, how do you work the time parameters into a situation like that? You know, in the book of Revelation, we do find that there are certain symbols mentioned, but those symbols are always defined quite literally. You know, for example, the seven lampstands are defined to be the uh, seven churches. The bowl of incense is defined to be the prayers that go up to the saints. And the reason I bring this up, Pat, is that by understanding those symbols and their literal meanings, we can construct from the beginning of Revelation to the end of Revelation, a logical and coherent system of eschatology or prophecy. For example, if you just read it straight through chapters 4 through 18, deal with the tribulation period. In chapter 19, we see the second coming of Christ. In chapter 20, we see the millennial kingdom. In chapters 21 and 22, we see the eternal state. And you've got time clues mentioned all throughout, which give us a a good understanding of the proper chronology of all of this. And so that just kind of does away with the idealist approach as far as I'm concerned. You know, the book of Revelation becomes kind of irrelevant, in my view, if it's just an idealist kind of a book. Now, what about the futurist approach? Uh, Pat, do you know any futurists? Yes, I, those of us who interpret it literally. Yeah, well, I was talking about camp. you and me and quite a few others yes. are futurists. And I think that that makes the best sense of the book. You know, the book does claim to be prophecy right there in Revelation 1, verse 3. 
and again in chapter 22. And, you know, we see a little bit of an outline of the book in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 19, where the Lord tells John to write the things that he has just seen and the things that presently are and the things that will take place after this. Well, when the Lord tells John to write the things that will take place after this, he's talking about the prophetic future. And that prophetic future begins in chapter 4 of Revelation. That's when the tribulation period begins, you see, and that's yet future. This period hasn't begun yet. It's a future day of wrath, a time of wrath, as the Apostle Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 9 and 10. Prophet Daniel, back in Daniel 9, 27, indicated that this seven-year period is equivalent to the period described in Revelation 4 through really the first part of chapter 19, you know, the tribulation period. And so, uh, to me, when the uh, plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up in nonsense. <laughs> yeah, you know, when, when you take right. it pretty it's straightforward, it makes a great deal of sense. Now, one that's gaining a lot of popularity, again, is the preterist view, which pretty much says the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 was fulfilled in 70 A.D., Tell us, well, uh, that's right. And, uh, you know, as I talk about in the book, there's actually two forms of preterism. Actually, the word preterism comes from a Latin term, preter, which means past. And so that's why this is a viewpoint that says that most of the prophecies have already taken place in the past. And of these two forms, you've got moderate preterism. And this is a viewpoint that's represented by quite a few people today who believe that almost all the prophecies were fulfilled in the past, except for the resurrection and the second coming, which is yet future. But everything else has been fulfilled in the past. You know, when you look at Revelation 4 through the first part of 19, for example, all of that was fulfilled when Titus and his Roman warriors overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, according to this viewpoint. And then full preterism goes so far as to say that every prophecy was fulfilled, including the resurrection and the second coming. Obviously, there's a great deal of debate that's going on today, I personally believe that preterism has a great deal of, uh, you know, problems to deal with. You know, for example, the book of Revelation starts out right at the beginning by claiming to be a prophecy in Revelation 1, verse 3, and, and the prophecy refers to the future. Also, when you look at it, many of the key events that are described in the book of Revelation simply did not occur back in A.D. 70. For example, we read about how, um, you know, a, a third of mankind is killed during the tribulation period. Well, that didn't happen A.D. 70. We read about 200 million soldiers. You see those soldiers are demonic spirits, depending upon what interpreter you listen to, who come from the East and overrun humanity, and that didn't happen. And what about this prophecy that every living thing died that was in the sea? That's in Revelation 16, verse 3. Well, that didn't happen. Now, I could go on and on. But the point is that a great majority of the events that are described in the book of Revelation simply did not occur back in A.D. 70. Now, I have to also mention the dating of the book of Revelation. Preterists often claim that the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 70 and hence refers to events in A.D. 70. Futurists, like myself, however, believe that the book of Revelation was written much later, probably in A.D. 90 to 95. And this is a date that was confirmed by the earliest church fathers, including Irenaeus, who said that the book was written about A.D. 96. And then this was confirmed by other church fathers and church historians in those early centuries of Christianity. Well, long story short, Pat, I think that the evidence supports futurism. 
It makes the best sense of prophecy, and when you compare the book of Revelation with other prophecies, like the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25, Paul's writings in 1 Thessalonians 4, as well as 2 Thessalonians 2, the book of Daniel, the book of Zechariah, particularly chapters 12 and 14, it all fits together. And one of the things I do in one of my books, The End Times in Chronological Order, is that I fit all these together in a nice chronology that just makes perfect sense. So I'm confident in this viewpoint. That doesn't mean that I'm going to break fellowship with people who may disagree with me on a minor point. But I do believe that you should study the issue and come to a conclusion as to what you believe on these issues. Yeah, now, Ron, you know, one of the arguments from preterism is Matthew 24, verse 34, when Jesus goes through the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then he says, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. And the argument there is that a generation is about 40 years. So if you go from the time of Jesus, 40 years, you get about 70 A.D. How do we answer that verse? Well, it hinges on what you think time-wise this generation is. Is it referring to the time of Jesus, or does it refer to the generation during which specific end-time events will take place? Now, you kind of gave the clue as you were describing this verse in the Preterist viewpoint. The fact is, is that Jesus is talking about future events, such as the abomination of desolation. That's an event that will take place when the Antichrist actually sits within the Jewish temple and then sets up an image. The Antichrist first lieutenant, the false prophet, will set up an image of the Antichrist within the temple itself. And this is in the future tribulation period, and this will defile the temple, and that's why it's called the abomination of desolation. So Jesus is talking about future events that will take place during the tribulation period, and then Jesus says, this generation, that is to say, the generation that sees the abomination of desolation and other end-time events, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, when you think about it, Pat, it's logical that Jesus would say that this generation, when all these things happen, would not pass away until all these things take place, because the Jewish people of that time understood from Daniel the prophet that this tribulation period was to last seven years, thereby indicating that the large number of the people who were be, you know, alive at the beginning of this seven-year period, you know, some of them are still going to be alive at the end of that period. And so literally speaking, Jesus could say that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So again, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you end up in nonsense. You know, Pat, one of the things you want to guard against is taking a verse in isolation from the verses that precede it or the verses that come after. And if the preterist would simply tie Matthew 24, verse 34, to the verses that precede it, which, in which Jesus talks about these end-time events, you know, I think that they would see a whole lot more clearly on, as, as to the correct meaning of this verse. Jesus talks about him coming on the clouds of glory and the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, which didn't happen when Titus conquered Jerusalem and things. So you're right on it. doesn't seem to match what happened in 70 AD if you take it literally. Well, that's right. And like I said, you know, I take sort of a cohesive view of Bible prophecy where all the pieces fit together nicely and logically. And there's just too many things working against the uh, preterist viewpoint. Now, Pat, that's not to say that there's absolutely no problems with pre-tribulationism or premillennialism. 
I remember talking to uh, John Wolvard about this. Now, John Wolvard was a great prophetic scholar who has written quite a number of books on prophecy. And one of the things that he told me made a great impression on me, and that is this. He said that if, if anyone says that their position on Bible prophecy has virtually no problems, then they haven't studied the issue very well. And so, yeah, there are some problems with every viewpoint, but you know what the, pro- you know what the viewpoint is that has the least problems and that are most easily explainable? It's the pre-tribulational viewpoint. And that's because it takes a rather straightforward approach, a literal approach to the Bible prophecies. And again, that's identical to the approach that we understand in terms of the uh, prophecies that deal with the first coming of Christ, because just as those prophecies were fulfilled literally in the first coming, so the prophecies that deal with the second coming will likely be fulfilled just as literally. And so, you know, a lot of it is your method of interpretation, Patch. You know, if you're going to spiritualize these passages, yeah, you can come up with preterism. But if you're going to take them in a straightforward way, in a literal way, I don't think there's any way you can end up in preterism. Well, another popular verse by the preterist is Revelation 22, where Jesus says, I am coming soon. And so if he is coming soon, it means it's, it's very imminent. And many of them say, well, that would refer to then, you know, within that generation that was to follow. How do you answer that passage where Jesus says, I am coming soon? And it's been 2,000 years. Well, that is a good question, and uh, this would probably constitute a problem verse for the pre-tribulational viewpoint, at least on outward appearances, it may seem that way. Once you dig beneath just a little bit and you understand the original Greek, I think it makes a lot more sense. And I say that because the Greek word for soon is used in other contexts in the New Testament, in which the word soon literally means swiftly or speedily or at a rapid rate. And so my take on it is that this verse indicates that when the predicted events of the tribulation period first start to occur, and that's beginning in chapter 4 all the way through 18, then they will progress speedily in rapid succession. And particularly once you get to the bowl judgments, for example, which take place towards the, uh, the very end of the tribulation period, you know, it is speedily. Once those bowl judgments start to happen, I mean, Jesus' is coming is just right around the corner. So I think that's what Jesus is referring to. I think he's referring to the fact that within the context of the book of Revelation, in which all these events of the end times are described, from that perspective, he will come speedily and at a rapid rate. So I don't think it means that Christ is going to come in the first century, because obviously, you know, that didn't happen. So common sense would tell us that that viewpoint can't be right. Yes. Now, you touched on an event you talked about, the rapture. What is the rapture, and where is it taught in the Bible? Well, that's a great question, too. And the rapture means catching up. It's the snatching up of believers. And what happens at the rapture is that the dead in Christ will literally be resurrected and and meet Christ up in the air. And then instantly, living believers will receive their resurrection bodies or glorified bodies. They'll be transformed into glorified bodies and meet Christ in the air. And then they will go back to heaven. And this is taught actually in a number of different places. I think one of the most common passages would be 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 17. And uh, that's the verse that tells us that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then, then we who are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And interestingly, Pat, Paul goes on to say that, therefore, we are to comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Now, I think that uh, comforting each other with these words only works in the pre-tribulational view, which says the rapture happens before the tribulation period. 
Now, just suppose that post-tribulationism was correct. Suppose that the rapture didn't happen until after the tribulation. That verse would end up saying the following. Now, you as a Christian are going to go through all the judgments in the book of Revelation, including the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, and you're going to receive the wrath of God, and you're going to receive satanic wrath, and many of you will become martyrs. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. That's encouraging. That just doesn't work. (laughs) But it does make a great deal of sense if the church is to be raptured out before the tribulation period. That would be an encouragement. Now, beyond that, Pat, we find all kinds of other uh, supportive evidences. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus says that we are to be delivered from the wrath to come. And the original Greek word for deliver means to draw or snatch out to oneself. We are to be snatched out from the wrath to come. And that's exactly what's going to happen you know, before the tribulation period. Christ will remove the church or snatch the church from the earth. Did you know that we don't see a single reference to the church in any passage in the Old Testament or the New Testament that deals with the tribulation? You know, in fact, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we find multiple references to the church. But then in chapter 4 and following, where the tribulation period begins, you don't see the church mentioned once, not once. So those kind of evidences lead me to believe that, in fact, the rapture will take place before the tribulation period. Now, many teach that the rapture was not taught in the early church, but it's a recent development. Is this correct? Well, it's interesting that you say that, because the more that we study church history, the more we discover earlier people who taught the doctrine of the rapture early on. But let's just suppose for the moment that that viewpoint is correct, that it emerged late in church history. In my thinking, this wrongly supposes that truth is somehow determined by time. Now, let me illustrate what I mean. In the first five centuries of church history, there were many false doctrines that emerged. And one example of that is baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration says you don't get born again until you're baptized in water. And they taught that for five centuries. We don't believe that today. At least most of us don't believe that today. Today, we believe that you become born again the moment that you trust in Jesus Christ. And the point that I'm making is that just because a doctrine was early does not mean it is true. And conversely, just because a doctrine emerged later on in church history does not mean it is incorrect. Now, to me, it makes great sense to think that eschatology or prophecy would become a focus later in church history. And honestly, I think this fits with the book of Daniel. When you think about it, you know, in the book of Daniel, we read the words of the Lord to Daniel to seal up the prophecies and that knowledge would be increased in the end times when some of these prophecies would begin to be fulfilled. The tenor of Scripture seems to indicate that in the end times, when some of these prophecies are going to be fulfilled, that's when a full understanding starts to occur for the meaning of these passages of Scripture. And I think that we're seeing that in our very day today. And, you know, uh, I also think that we have current events on our side, Pat. You know, when you look at, for example, what's happening in our world today, I think that we see the stage being set for quite a number of different prophecies to be fulfilled, not the least of which is the Ezekiel invasion into Israel, which will one day occur as led by Russia, Iran, Sudan, Turkey, Libya, and some other Muslim nations. The stage is being set for that, you know, even as we speak today. So, like I said before, I'm pretty convinced that this viewpoint is correct. 
And I won't divide fellowship over it, but I will try to teach as many people as I can about this. Yeah, you're referring, I believe, to the Ezekiel 38, 39 prophecy, the Battle of Gog and Magog. Just tell us a little bit about that. There's an alliance of nations here led by Gog and Magog here. They're very interesting with what's going on today. Well, it is. When you look at the entire context there, starting in chapter 36 on through 39, the first thing that we are told that will happen is that Israel must become born again as a nation. You know, in uh, Ezekiel 37, we read about a valley of dry bones and how the bones come together, and then muscle grows on the bones, and then flesh grows on the bones. What that is, is a description of the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And so that's the precondition. That has to happen first. The second thing that has to happen, according to the Ezekiel prophecy, is that Jewish people from every nation in the world must stream back to the Holy Land. Now, that's never happened before our day. Ever since 1948, when Israel became a nation again, Jewish people have been streaming back to the Holy Land from every nation of the world. But back in Bible times, that has never happened. In in Bible times, Israel would go into subjectivity to or become subject to a single nation like Babylon, for example. And then once the captivity was over, Israel returned to the Holy Land from that one nation. But this is the first time in history where we see Jews returning to the Holy Land from virtually every nation of the world. And then the next thing that was to happen was to be an alliance of nations that would emerge that would include, like I said, Russia and Turkey and Sudan and Iran, Libya, and the nations that are near and surround the Black and the Caspian Seas. And that would include some of the stand nations like Afghanistan and Turkmenistan and so forth. The only difference in modern Iran and ancient Persia, which is what this verse talks about, is that ancient Persia has a much wider perimeter on the, on the left and the right, on the west and the east. And so the reference to um, Iran that I make here actually includes not just modern Iran, but the Muslim territories off to the east and the west. If you don't understand what I'm talking about, The main thing to keep in mind is that the text of of Ezekiel indicates a massive invasion of Muslim nations working with Russia into Israel. Now, Pat, you know, it might surprise you to learn that this is talking about Russia joining Muslim nations, but this is nothing new. When you examine our recent past, it's very clear that uh, Russia has actually already done this. For example, back in the 1970s, when some uh, Muslim nations invaded and attacked Israel, Guess who provided the weaponry and the intelligence? Russia. Russia was the one who did it. And even during the 1967 war, which was a big territorial dispute, Russia actually was moving to invade Israel. Their ships were moving toward Israel. They had their air force all pumped and ready. And it wasn't until the United States president stared down the Russian bear that they backed off. But the point that I'm making is that there's already a strong precedent for the Russians working with the Muslims against Israel. And so this is something that's yet to come, this this big Ezekiel invasion, but the stage is being set as we speak. Yeah, as we speak of modern events, question I'm often asked is, is America mentioned in Bible prophecy? Well, that's probably one of the most common asked questions to me personally. And, you know, people have some pretty strange ideas on this. I know that there's some people who think that whenever the Bible mentions an eagle, that that must be the United States. But, you know, that's really not good theology. That's kind of like reading something into the Bible that's not there, and that's what we call eisegesis. What we ought to do is follow exegesis, and that's drawing the meaning out of the text of Scripture itself. 
There's also some people who believe that the reference to the land divided by waters in Isaiah 18 is a reference to America. After all, we have the Mississippi River. But when you look at the context, the uh, territory is actually described as modern Sudan. So that's not America. And then some people think that the land of Tarshish in Ezekiel 38 is somehow a reference to America. But you know what, want to know what the truth is? Nobody knows for sure what Tarshish is. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll see we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including Pat's articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. So be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and of course your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ right here on Evidence and Answers. Oh, 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 oh,